Welcome to Volunteer Plain Talk Podcast, the podcast for today's leaders of volunteers. Your host is me, Meridian Swift. Everybody. Welcome back to the Volunteer Plain Talk podcast. My guest today is Laura Rendell. We actually did a podcast last year back in March of 2021 at the height of the pandemic. So Laura and I thought we would get back together and just see where we are and the things we've been uh, noticing and what we think is going on in the volunteer world one year later. So Laura, hey, welcome to the show again. We talked about, just just so everybody knows, we talked mainly about resilience back in March of 2021. A lot of the things we talked about, uh, Laura, you talked about the copameter. We talked a little bit about examples of resilient volunteers. And so really the resilience idea, I think, can bleed forward into this year. How resilient are our volunteers? How are they able to go two years with not knowing, you know, if they have a future with our organizations? You know, is there anything that's changed drastically in the world of volunteering as far as them being resilient? Oh, gracious. Well, the first thing I guess I'd say in terms of change is, uh, to use a mixed metaphor, there's a lot more gray hair under the bridge now than there was <laughs> a year ago. Um, I've, see, I've seen changes in a number of different fronts, some of them related to resiliency, some not so much. Um, I'm starting to see more volunteers um who have maybe been quiet during the pandemic for one reason or another, starting to become active again, or new folks look us up and say, you know, I've always wanted to volunteer and I I couldn't do it during the pandemic, but I, you know, now that things are more calm, I'd like to do that. Um, But I've also seen at our agency, a huge uptick in the need for services too. I think, that's one of the biggest changes I've seen in the last year is, is not only um, the breadth of need increasing, the number of people needing services has increased, but the um, uh, depth of the need they have has gone up. You know, when I was talking with my supervisor about how we wanted to move our caregivers program moving forward, you know, sort of somewhat post-pandemic, You know, we were saying, well, before, you know, it might just be coming and visiting and having a cup of tea with someone and chatting. And now there's, um, you know, people trying to navigate. They need to they really aren't safe at home anymore. And how how can they navigate getting into assisted living or people that um, can't find folks to help keep their apartment clean and, and safe and habitable anymore? So. I've just seen the needs changing quite a bit, too. Mm -hmm. Do you think some of it is because during the pandemic, people who might have needed services just felt like, well, I can't reach. There's nothing I can do at this point except shelter in place. So everybody's been like saving it up. Or do you think there's actually more people in need? 
Oh, that's a tough one. I think there's a couple factors going on. Certainly with medical rides during the height of the pandemic, people were not going to doctor's offices as much. So I suspect not only are they catching up on some of those basic checkup things that they were doing, but when they're in the course of a checkup, they, there's more that's probably getting caught now than, you know, whereas if they had been going consistently it may not have gotten to the level of seriousness, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think, honestly, I think the isolation had a huge toll on older, vulnerable older adults too, um, especially folks that didn't have family living close by. So I, I think there's a lot of factors at play there. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of research that isolation has uh, a very detrimental medical effect on folks, especially older. So I I think you probably hit on something there where we're going to see an influx of people who are have been affected by the pandemic in a very negative way. Right, exactly. And then at the same time, while all that's going on, a lot of the home health care agencies and other and other similar services are really stretched to try and find paid staff. You know, they trying to find CNAs and home health aides and, uh, you know, people to do those sorts of services. There's, there's also a deficit of folks that can help out at that level, too. So where do volunteers fit in all this? I mean, it's- so. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I really spent a lot of time trying to think about and plan and discuss and kind of back and forth is um, with our caregivers program, you know, we had this model, again, kind of pre-pandemic where, you know, one volunteer might be matched with one older adult and they go in and provide some companionship or they might take them out to lunch or go to the grocery store. And they would do a lot of, one volunteer would provide a lot of individual services to one person. And when the pandemic hit, obviously, we weren't able to provide that same level of service, but we didn't want to discontinue really critical support. So we kept our volunteer driver program going for medical rides only. We switched to a contact-free shopping service. We did supportive phone calls. And then once the pandemic, again, not we're not over, certainly not, not out of the woods completely, but once things got more manageable, I really wanted to sit down as an agency and talk about, okay, where does this caregiver program model go moving forward? And one of the things that we talked about was the importance of keeping appropriate boundaries for our volunteer services. And so we really we really looked at, well, how do we still provide some of those um, essential services? You know, we don't want to discontinue that. How do we. Yeah. So how do we navigate and how do we move forward in an ever shifting landscape where, you know, again, we could hit another wave, something else. So we sat down and, you know, you and I had talked about. Um, how we communicate and manage change in volunteer programs. So one of the things that was important to me was getting our caregiver volunteers on board with our plan. So my my initial thought and our my supervisor's initial thought was, we're going to keep the current model that we have in place where we can still provide supportive phone service, grocery shopping, and met and rides to medical appointments. 
If we get to the point where we have enough volunteers and demand is sort of um, stabilized, we could start adding some non-medical rides in there. So we talked about keeping that model and then looking at ways we could provide some companionship in a very specifically defined role. So one of the things we're looking at, we're exploring is using some pet therapy volunteers to provide that missing companionship piece, but in a way that's much more specifically defined. So it's harder for those lines to get blurred or those boundaries to get pushed. Um, so when we came up with this plan, as I said, it was important to me that our current volunteers were on board that they knew why we had made this decision. So, you know, we, I pulled together a meeting of our volunteers via Zoom and I explained everything just as I had explained it to you. And I said, you know, does this sound okay to everybody? Cause I, I wanted there to be buy-in and, and, you know, I don't possess the wisdom of the ages. There's stuff I certainly could have missed or somebody could sometimes raise those questions. We're like, yeah, how did I possibly mix X? You know what? Mm -hmm. So we brought our volunteers, as I say, to the table and everybody was on board with the plan and excited to be part of it. And so that's how we are looking at moving forward for the next, at least the next year or so, unless some other change uh, throws a wrench in the, in the works again, which is possible. Did you view it as an opportunity like, oh, you know, this is a chance for us to make some changes that I think we probably should have made anyway, or did you look at it as we're, we're just going to have to do the best we can? Hmm. I would say two things. The, I, I did look at it as a change that probably needed to be made anyway, but I think also there was just an acknowledgement that old program models may just may not be viable anymore. You know, some, sure, some, I'm sure some programs um, can go right back to doing things the way they did before the pandemic and not miss a beat. And that's great for them. <clears throat> but what I was seeing, again, was because the amount of need that folks had was so vast and so varied, I really needed to be able to say, here's the definable list of things that our program is able to help with. That doesn't mean that these folks still don't need other services. They can. But I also didn't want to burn out our volunteers going in there feeling like, wow, I've got to help this person do their bookkeeping and clean their house and, you know, get, do their dirty laundry, like all of these things that they need. So trying to keep it definable. Mm -hmm. um, was something I saw, as I said, just based on what the landscape is right now. I just didn't see a return to a, that previous model as being viable, for, at least not for the next year or so, if that makes sense. Yeah, not only does it make sense, I think it's a very wise decision. Why? Because most, we, you and I both know, most volunteer managers or leaders of volunteers are swamped. They're swamped with all kinds of requests. And, and so prioritizing, which I think is kind of what you were doing, 
um, and looking at what exactly is our mission about, what is the most important thing we need to deliver. Let's start there. Let's deliver that in right. in the most excellent way we can, and then everything else just has to come secondary. Let's let's be really good at what we can do to support the mission. It, absolutely, and and I think the other piece I looked at was what can I sustain. Um, again, I'm not minimizing all those other needs that older adults have, but realistically speaking, if we started to say, well, sure, we'll find a volunteer to clean your home, we would never be able to sustain in our service territory cleaning service for every vulnerable older adult who needed their house clean. We just, there's just no way we could possibly deliver that in a way that was equitable so that was the other thing I looked at, too, is, OK, yes, I might be able to deliver broader services, but it would have to be to such a smaller scale size of program, whereas this way, by keeping things more defined, I think we're able to offer the services we offer, we're able to offer to more people. Having said that, if suddenly a group of 30 people tell us, yeah, we'd love to start volunteering to clean people's homes, you know, we can certainly look at doing that. But um, yeah, right now, that's just not sustainable, not something we could offer equitably to all the folks that we serve. And how do you pick and choose? You get it, you don't. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, Laura, and what have you seen in so much upheaval? Is there something that you see that has just remained the same? It's just a constant, whether that be volunteers' attitudes or, you know, whatever. What is the constant through all this? Just the ability of people to, that, and the desire to reach out and help others. You know, whether it's somebody that maybe can just do one or two rides a month to somebody that's doing weekly shopping trips for somebody, people legitimately just want to be of assistance and want to be of service in their community. And I always find that so inspirational. Um, you know, and even as I say, we've had more folks applying with the pandemic somewhat waning, but even in the midst of the pandemic, people were calling me and they wanted to be a friendly caller or they wanted to be a shopper or, um, and I think the thing that I heard is, you know, people would say, well, I can't do X. You know, I'm not quite ready to to maybe go into hospitals and visit patients. I'm not quite ready for that. But here's what I can do. I can. And so having some options for people that, you know, were a range of different contact points, you know, the friendly callers don't go into houses at all. They they it's all phone support. Or the shopping where, you know, you might just be dropping off at the front door and briefly kind of wave through the, the through the screen door and even, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So having that range of options for people, I, I found a lot of people said, you know, I really want to help during the pandemic, but, you know, I have an immunocompromised family or family member, but I can make phone calls. I, that I saw a lot, too. People that wanted to do something. Mm-hmm. And that's a fantastic constant that, um, you know, keeps us all all going is the fact that people do want to help. And if we mm-hmm. give them the opportunity, they will actually show up. 
Right. Yeah. The opportunity and the structure and, and the defined, you know, again, that defined quali- quantity of, you know, here's what your role is and here's what your role isn't so that people kind of know where, you know, where the landscape is in terms of what they're signing up for. Yeah. Now, here's here's a question for you. Um, and I love to put you on the spot. Yes. <laughs> so yell at me if you you need to. Um, but. I think we all struggle with, let's take uh, you, your volunteers, for instance, you have some who drop groceries or shopping off at the door. You have some who make phone calls and they realize that there are other volunteers who maybe go into the homes, maybe have real personal contact. How do those volunteers, how do you keep those volunteers understanding that what they are doing is contributing as much to the mission, to the success of the organization as someone who they may view rightly or wrongly, they may view as, oh, they're so much better than me because they do X, Y, and Z, and I don't. So what we've, um, the sort of model I've come up with is what I call volunteers are part of the care team now. So again, instead of being one individual caregiver where you're just matched with one person, I describe it as you are part of the care team. So, you know, and this was a a case we had um, a few months ago where the person that dropped off their groceries was noticing a change in one of our clients. Um, and, you know, the shoppers will often chat a little bit to whoever they're shopping for and, you know, what items do you need this week and when can I come by? And so, you know, there's some companionship role there too. And the, a couple of folks who had driven this person had also noticed things were just not quite right. And so I was able to call their emergency contact and, and the um, family got involved in checking on mom and making sure things were okay. So I, I really try and hit on that model of everybody's part of the care team. So no matter what you do, you are an integral part of that care team. And I think it also takes some of that pressure off as I say, volunteers feeling like, well, I'm the only person between between this client and, you know, chaos or them getting sick or whatever it is, um, because there's other volunteers that are part of that care team. Yeah, that that's so important that they, you know, and stories of other volunteers in their situation can inspire them. You know, this this is what happens. So you're looking out for this, uh, the people, the clients that you come in contact. You could possibly do this as well. You could be that one, you know, person who who sees something that the rest of us have missed. So exactly, exactly. And sometimes, um, you know, again, folks may not our clients may not have family members or the family members may not live close by or whatever it is. But um you know, especially if somebody's calling every week or seeing them every week for a medical appointment, you know, helping them get to a medical appointment, they might see some of those smaller shifts that 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 other people might miss. In all this change, and uh, this change has been very chaotic and, and, and kind of crazy, do you see change as as an impetus in which to change the hearts and minds of people. In other words, say uh, administration at your organization, say volunteers who are 
maybe just really attached to the old models, maybe the community who doesn't understand what the volunteers do in your organ. Have you seen change as being a way to get your point across or, or, or get a message across or change hearts and minds out there? Ooh, um, trying to think how to answer that. Uh, certainly it does. I mean, I've seen, um, members telling me how important the volunteer support has been to their mom or their dad or their uncle or whoever it is. But I've also seen other agencies that are struggling to perhaps provide some of those additional resources, you know, like home health aids and things like that, not understanding that that we ha also have a defined limit. I've had to have a couple of discussions with a specific agency where, you know, they're saying, well, I don't know why you're not cleaning people's homes and I don't know why you're not going in and doing X, Y, and Z. And trying to explain to them, you know, that our volunteers are also older adults and um, we also have to protect them and keep them safe and um the thing, the thing I say a lot is, well, what we provide to one client, we've really, it's really got to be something we can offer to everybody. It's not fair, as you said earlier, to pick and choose. So trying to communicate that, that again, that this, this change has happened, um, not just to our organization, but lots of volunteer service programs around, around the area, trying to communicate in and in that we have thought about this. And again, this is what we're able to sustain as an agency um, can sometimes be a little bit challenging as well to, to places that are frustrated. Well, you know, why aren't you doing their taxes and why aren't you cleaning their place and taking out their trash and all these other things that sure we'd love to help with in an ideal world, we'd have, you know, 3000 volunteers. We could do all that. This is what we can do for now. There, there might be a shift in, thinking that, you know, we, we can't sustain all the old ways we expected them to sustain volunteers in. Well, and I think that we all need to, as agencies, periodically, we always have to look at, well, what, not only what can volunteers be asked to do, but what should they be asked to do? Um and that's always something that I kind of think about. I have to think about a lot, too. You know, sometimes we'll get requests for someone needing medical rides. It really is just a scotch above what a volunteer driving their own vehicle should be asked to do. You know, would there be somebody that might be willing to do it? Yeah, there might be. But they sh really should not be asked to um, be, a you know, do certain things, as I say, they're driving their own vehicle. So I sort of always keep in mind too that I, I try and think about what should we be asking them to do. I remember, um, you know, thinking back, I, I started out where it was like, you want to volunteer to what? Yeah, absolutely. I'll just go ask everybody you want a, a volunteer to do. Yeah. And then pretty soon it was like, all right, maybe. And then finally I completely got into risk management the whole idea of diversity and inclusion and I've had volunteers who 
sadly, have gone into homes and been insulted, been given a hard time because they're of a different culture. And when that happens, you're like, oh, man, this is not supposed to be part of volunteering. So yeah, we have to be really careful. We have to be ethical about where we're willing to put a poor volunteer and what we're willing to expect of them. Exactly. Yeah. And um, sometimes, and, and that's one thing I've learned a lot over the last year or so is that sometimes you just have to say no. And I feel badly every single time I got a call from another agency that was looking for a volunteer medical driver. And there were some complications to this ride that I won't get into, you know, just because it's kind of icky to talk about. But, um, you know, when I said, well, you know, I don't think that's really appropriate for a volunteer driver. She said, well, Uber didn't have any problem with it. And I said, well, Uber drivers are paid. And, you know, and it's, you know, their vehicle is probably, they probably have some sort of insurance from Uber, you know, (laughs) to their vehicle. And I said, these are volunteers are taking their own car. And she's like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) thing too is getting people to understand these are services provided by a volunteer and, you know, so, yeah, again, they're driving their own car to pick up groceries or do whatever it is. So, you know, having to have that tough conversation with somebody, no, you can't send them back to the grocery store four times because that, you know, they didn't get the right coffee brand or, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not Instacart. We want to provide <laughs> quality service, but within limits, you know. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And I, when I would train volunteers, I, I mean, it was eye opening. I used to tell them, look, I'm going to be up front with you. If you get in an accident, then they will come for your insurance first. They will come for our insurance for sure, because we're an organization, but they will come for you first. And that, oh, okay. But you can't dupe them into doing things that put them at risk. Yeah. And I think that I think you really hit on something important there, and that's communicating ahead of time what people might find frustrating about a given volunteer assignment. You know, years ago when I worked at the botanical gardens, we would need docents to lead tours. And and we had a string of a couple of months where tours were getting canceled quite frequently, and we ended up making sure we got a deposit so that kind of reduced some of that. But I would always tell the volunteer, you know, sometimes a bus is late because there's traffic or something happens. And I said, if if it's really going to get under your skin that you might be kept waiting a half an hour for a school bus to arrive, you know, maybe that's not the assignment you want. Maybe you want to do something where, you know, you can come in at nine and start right at nine and leave at a specific time. So. I think it's twofold trying to do what you can to address the problem. You know, like we, like I said, we started charging more deposits so that people weren't just saying, Oh, well, there's a docent, but it doesn't matter if we show up or not. Mm -hmm. Um, But also communicating ahead of time. If this, if this is the situation you're going to find frustrating, maybe this is not the assignment for you, you know? Yeah. Why put all that effort into partnering with a volunteer and, and, and bringing them into the fold when, you know, one thing could just make them leave. And I think we're with the program I'm running now. One of the things I often I I find myself having to tell folks a lot is 
you're, you know, I'm going to tell you right up front, you're not going to be able to solve every problem that our older adults are going to have. You know, you're not going to be able to fix their medical issues. You're not going to be able to make their incommunicative son become more responsible or whatever it is. And we've had a number of situations where folks have been in their home, perhaps and was really safe. But that's not something I can't even change that. Like, you know, so I and that's really hard for volunteers to see. And I completely acknowledge that that's got to be tough for them when they are, you know, dropping off groceries or dropping somebody off for a medical ride that they see, man, this this person's home is is really not safe. There's obstacles everywhere. You know, they're really unstable on their feet, whatever the issue is. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not even a decision I can force on that person. And and it's really tough for volunteers to be able to say, okay, I can't fix all of these other things that are going on, but I can at least make sure they're getting to their doctor's appointment, or I can at least make sure there's there's food in their refrigerator. Um, and so that's something I try and be really upfront about is that, you know, this might be, this might be really hard going in there and, and recognizing that you can't fix everything. I found the same thing. It was volunteers who saw people who the family never came around or yeah. it didn't appear that somebody cared about this person or this person, like you say, lived in a, a kind of a house that, that may be a little bit dangerous or a little bit unkempt or it was it was tough and and having them motor through that anyway was just like you said before some of the most inspirational things you could ever think that they would be able to do that knowing that they were not going to change the situation and being okay with still supporting that person i think is honestly some of the most inspirational things i've i've really ever seen yeah i definitely echo that Okay, that's the end of part one. I've actually cut this interview into two parts because I don't want you to miss anything that Laura has to say. And so please tune in for part two when that drops as Laura talks about volunteer impact, volunteer appreciation and volunteer awards, the culture of the nonprofits, change, which, uh, you know, we all love change and how we manage it, boundaries for volunteer managers, and grumpy volunteers. So thank you to Laura and tune in for the second part. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the Volunteer Clean Talk podcast. Big thank you to Alternate Timelines for the use of their music. For more volunteer management talk, or if you just want to reach out to me, please visit my website, volunteerclaintalk.com. Or you can catch me at Meridian Swift on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Until next time, this is Meridian Swift. Thank you and bye-bye.